Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across their funds and syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early-stage climate tech globally. Today's episode is guest-hosted by me, Dimitri Gershenson. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Enduring Planet, a climate capital portfolio company. We're a fintech company, and we provide fast, flexible, and founder-friendly working capital to climate entrepreneurs. Today, I'm interviewing Juliet Murphy, who is the CEO and co-founder of FloodMap, a venture-backed climate tech startup helping emergency managers save lives and prevent damage. After experiencing the devastation of the Queensland 2011 floods and the Calgary, Canada 2013 flood, Juliet co-founded FloodMap with Ryan Prosser in a mission to improve safety and prevent damage. Juliet has led a global team to develop AI-powered live flood intelligence, delivering situational awareness before, during, and after floods. This technology has already achieved an incredible impact through enabling targeted evacuations, swift water rescue, live road closures, and traffic routing, and fast-track community recovery. Prior to FloodMap, Juliet was a professional water resources engineer for over a decade, specializing in hydrology, hydraulics, and flood monitoring. Full disclosure, Climate Capital is an investor in FloodMap. CCPod is not investment advice and is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should do your own research and make your own independent decisions when considering any investment decision. And with that, welcome Juliet to the CCPod. Thank you so much, Dimitri, for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. And yeah, that's that's great advice. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good way to start the good way to start the pod. So before we dive into flood map, I'd love to learn a little bit about, about you and about your background. Uh, where are you from? How did you get into this work? And tell us something unexpected about you. All right. Well, what can I tell you? I My name's Juliet Murphy. You did a beautiful introduction. I grew up in southeast Queensland uh, near Brisbane, Australia. Uh, I studied environmental engineering and then went on to specialize in water resources. Uh, that sort of got me down on, on this along this path. Something unexpected about me that not a lot of people know, I used to be in a circus doing acrobatics and can still ride a unicycle. That is very unexpected. <laughs> Do you ever get to ride your unicycle for work? Never, never. No, since starting the company, I don't have a lot of hobbies, but it is still hanging in the garage. So, yeah, it's uh, not something that, you know, I introduce in my day-to-day -day a lot, but it is unexpected. So, there you go. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about the origin story behind FloodMap. How did, how did the company come to be? How did you meet your co-founder? How did this all come together? Sure. All right. Where to start? I guess, you know, leading on from the introduction that I studied environmental engineering and, and went on to specialize in water resources. So I did a lot of modeling. We're talking like hydrology modeling, hydraulic modeling, flood studies, flood risk management, uh, flood forecasting. So, um, it was really my job working for a engineering firm for almost a, a decade, getting lots of technical expertise in, in this domain to understand, you know, all types of different hydrological challenges. So I worked for a company, uh, Golder Associates. Um, it's now WSP for almost eight years in their Brisbane office. And 
transferred with them to Calgary, Alberta, which is actually where I'm calling from today. Uh, in about yeah, 2012, I transferred to to Canada, worked there for four years, and so went from you know the land down under, like the land of drought and flooding rain. They talk about it um, to learning all about snowmelt hydrology and all the different challenges that brings. And so it was really my my technical expertise and flooding and you know storms, meteorology, rainfall. It had always fascinated me. I'd always had a deep fascination with it since you know being a growing up as a child and and sort of seeing flooding over the road and, you know, getting days where I couldn't go to school. So I, I was fascinated by it, got a lot of experience then um, on projects with local governments, with asset owners, even on insurance projects. And then uh, when I moved back to Australia in 2016, even got some experience with a, an asset owner and um, that was responsible for water supply planning and, you know, some experience with their on-call flood forecasting operations. So it was um, a lot of technical expertise I was bringing there as a professional water resources engineer. But to be honest, I think that alone was not the motivator by any means for FloodMap. I think the the idea and the motivation for FloodMap, which I'll preface by saying I, I never set out to start a company. Really, this for me has always been about solving a, a problem that I care a lot about. And, and that was having lived through a couple of catastrophic disasters firsthand and seeing the impact on friends and family. So if we go back to uh, when I was living in Brisbane in 2011, there was an event where um, I think about 10 billion in damages across the state of Queensland. And, you know, this flood caused inundation of 20,000 homes in Brisbane alone, upstream in the Lockyer Valley, 35 people lost their lives, which was just so harrowing. And a lot of this, um, because no one had any warning or not enough warning of what was about to happen. And so the government authorities, they gave warning that the flood is going to peak at 12.5 metres at the Jindalee Bridge or 4.4 metres at the post office gauge. But if you are not a hydrology or hydraulics expert, you don't understand your house asset floor height or, you know, the hydrodynamics of the water and how that's going to spread out over land, these warnings are effectively meaningless to you. And and so my friend was living in one of the most impacted regions. And, you know, if you imagine the peak of a roof of a house, the flood went right over the top of that. And, you know, this is not... Australia is not a developing nation. This is like a, you know, a country where we should have systems in place not to build housing in places that are this exposed. But the reality is that there is. Houses are very exposed to these level of, of disasters. And so it really, it was harrowing after the floodwaters receded two days after, you know, seeing just the wreckage and devastation of, of her house and so many others and the loss of life. And it impacted me in a way I just can't can't describe. And then so two years later, I get transferred to Calgary, Alberta with my job. Uh, it's 2013. And they are hit with a really similar magnitude flood and exactly the same thing plays out. Opposite sides of the world, exact mm. same thing plays out. So it's like, you know, a one in a hundred year magnitude flood. There's like 150,000 people evacuating. There was loss of life there was like six billion in damages caused 
And all my friends, you know, the day before that event, because the authorities issued the same type of warning, a hydrology model warning that said that the flood's going to peak at 13.9 meters at the Bow River gauge, but no one knew what this means. So I'm getting these texts like, hey, Juliet, are is our house going to be impacted? Should we move our car? Should we evacuate? And there was just like this kind of panic in me of just like, how, how is there not better warnings? Like how, why is it on me to help all these people, which I'm happy to do, but like, how is the government not helping everyone understand who's at risk? And I think the reason it struck me so much that second time is because this is 2013. So this is the year that Uber had come to Calgary and I thought it was mind-boggling that I could book like a um, taxi ride on my phone and see a car coming to my door, moving in real time. And yet in a natural disaster, when we're talking about a matter of life or death, we're left in the dark. And yeah, I just, I couldn't let that go. I'd been really interested in, in software kind of in, you know, throughout my career from doing some coding of hydrology models. and. I sort of took it, took it up as a hobby. And then uh, my incredible partner at the time, now husband, Ryan Prosser, um, got roped in because he was much smarter at all the software side than, than I was with the kind of front end and, and back end. So it really started as a, a hobby and something that I did in my spare time because I'm a massive nerd, you know, in my evenings and weekends and has grown into what it is today, which is sort of a team of 30 people in three different countries. And yeah, having helped successfully evacuate people from, from floods. So yeah, just something I'm super passionate about, I guess. Incredible. Absolutely incredible story. And I want to come back. I have lots of questions about what it's like to build a company with your husband, but I, we can leave that for later in the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what flood map actually does like who are your customers what is the service you provide how does the the product address these problems that you sort of identified in your experience both in in australia and in canada sure yeah so our key um customers are emergency managers so we work with government and critical infrastructure asset owners um to ultimately help um people and, and residents have more warning or be able to navigate around flooding safely. So the, you know, the challenge of flooding, if we look at just the US alone, this is causing six over $6 billion in damage from flooding, $60 billion annually if you count the damage from a tropical cyclone, a lot of which is storm surge flooding and inland flooding. So this is sort of the elephant in the room. You know, Congress budgets $54 billion a year for hurricane and, and flooding. And then the loss of life on top of that, like just in 2023 alone, we've lost the lives of almost 7,400 people from flooding. And this is not getting worse. And I think it, these events are becoming more frequent and more severe with climate change, not only because of a warmer climate, warmer oceans, building more severe storms and intense rainfall events, but also because we have a growing population and growing infrastructure in exposed areas. So the intersection of the two is becoming a challenge that emergency managers in state government, local and even federal agencies don't have the capability and capacity to be able to respond to these events. So we're seeing these, these type of disasters arise as a result. Now, the World Bank has research to show that at least 35% of damage is preventable with the right early warning systems. But as I sort of spoke about in those two events, 
the key thing has been there's just been a lack of localized intelligence on the impact to people, property, and critical infrastructure. If emergency managers knew who exactly was going to be impacted, then they could do targeted evacuation messaging. They could do targeted road closures and traffic routing, and they could get targeted distribution of funding for a faster community recovery, but they didn't have that. And so that's what our our product is, is doing. At its core, we have built a live intelligence solution so think um, a live mapping feed API is our product. Uh, forecast, nowcast, and postcast are the live mapping feeds before, during, and after an event that support those emergency managers in preparedness, response, and recovery um, as a flood evolves. And, and they all stem from the IP that was built at its core, uh, Dash Dynamic Automated Scalable Hydroinformatics, that's able to take uh, forecast precipitation information about the, the terrain, uh, the catchment, and be able to ultimately deliver a flood extent and depth in real time uh, for emergency managers. And then they can bring that into a GIS platform that they generally use because it's an API feed, not a product. So they'll generally use that in something like ArcGIS, uh, you know, like Esri products, or we've also gone into like Waze, QGIS, uh, Google, Mapbox, and a number of others. And so then they're able to overlay that real-time flood map data on top of their you know, population assets to be able to know exactly what's going to be impacted to make informed decisions of where to put boats in the water to pull people out of the water or where to evacuate people. So yeah, it's super exciting to, to work with those industries. Are you pulling data out of publicly available sources? Are you also sort of compiling some proprietary data set where you have your own sensors out in the field? Like, how does all where does all of this information come from? It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, so a mix. Um, We link with public data sources such as the, you know, USGS uh, gauge database, NOAA, NWS uh, sensors, And we also uh, can integrate with proprietary uh, sets as well that local or state government may have implemented uh, a low-cost sensor network. And so we aggregate that data all in together. Um, You know, USGS has some great data sets for national uh, elevation data sets, but then we will work with an asset owner like an energy utility that also has a proprietary uh, maybe LIDAR data set that they've captured that's higher quality. And so we'll aggregate and, and mosaic and bring together all this data. And I think it's, um, yeah, the scalability and number of different data sets that we're, we're working with that ultimately has been able to enhance and, yeah, bring out the, the best in the model. Incredible. Just incredible. Um, you guys have built something really, truly special. And you've been at Thank it you. for a little bit of time, right? It's been yeah. what, five, five, six years. Six years, founded in twenty eighteen, uh, February. So, yeah, it's been been a long time now. That's that's a good amount of time to be building a company, and I'm sure it hasn't always been easy. So, tell us about a time, maybe a, a difficult moment in building this company, a challenge that you've had to overcome. Um, something that our listeners or you know founders like you can really learn from. 
So many challenges. I think, um, yeah, getting to product market fit is a really, really hard thing to to do. Like we have, I think, you know, hit and missed a few times with product in the early days. The, you know, the first version of FloodMap, which I'm very embarrassed about today, was a mobile app. Um, me thinking, hey, this would be great because consumers could use it to get, you know, more warning about what's going to happen in the flood. Um, but no, it turned out that just wasn't the the way to go about it because it didn't integrate collaboratively with the tools that, you know, mm. emergency managers and government agencies would need, um, particularly given that they're, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, uh, different agencies are going to be likely the authority for the the warnings. So, you know, six months after um, founding the company, the idea of a mobile app got mothballed pretty quickly there. And then we went to, you know, a web-based platform thinking that we're going to have the mapping included in the platform to visualize the flood data and have like a, you know, front end with a login credentials. Uh, But then we just, we got great feedback from our customers saying like, I wouldn't use this, like, I need, you know, I use Esri Arctis online. What I need is a data feed to feed into this. And so it can be a little, um, that can be a hard journey to go on as a founder, thinking you've come in, you've got the solution and to get that tough feedback. But without that tough feedback, we wouldn't have built what we had today. And I think you you always have to be moving forward. You can't have this sort of um, sunk cost fallacy that we've we started down this road, therefore we have to build this product because if it's not going to get used in the long term, it's it's never going to be successful. So I think that product market fit has been really hard. Um, you know, certainly capital raising and and finding sort of the right uh, investors that understood the deep technology that we were building. I think we, you know, from the early days and being a company that was founded out of Australia where you know, the available venture capital isn't what it is in in the US. Um, There's a lot of expectation for, you know, the company to be generating and and selling in the early days and the concept of um, building, you know, a deep tech kind of capital-intensive product was was one that was really hard and that took us some time to, I think, get the capital that we needed and, the amazing investors we have now on board uh, to to partner with that can be a really tough journey for founders too. Was there any any sort of shareable intel when it comes to how you changed your story, or what did you have to tweak to get people on board with with what is arguably a somewhat different set of expectations? Right, because it's not just a, another SaaS company. There's a lot of deep science that goes into this product and it has a different roadmap. So was it just about finding the right investors or was it something about how you presented the opportunity itself? Yeah, good question. I think it was ultimately in the end partnering with the right investors that not only just wanted to you know, assess this based on you know, metrics and a, a spreadsheet and current performance but actually invest based on the potential, based on the the founding team, the domain expertise and the, you know, exciting venture of a, a deep tech technology that could change the world and those that could see our vision and really got it 
they were they were our people. And so I think to me, yeah, it was about finding the right people for sure that that understood. I wanted to come back to the sort of product market fit challenges you talked about because I think that's a very common journey that a lot of founders go through. Do you feel like looking back, it was kind of an inevitable process that you had to go through? Or were there things you could have done earlier, you know, hindsight 2020, but as advice you could give to founders, right, around navigating product market fit? Are there things you could have done early that you didn't, where had you done them, you could have maybe taken a shortcut? Any lessons to share? Yeah, definitely hindsight. Like in, um, we could have done deeper customer interviews. We did a lot of surveys in the early days. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, even the subsets and samples of the, you know, populations that we surveyed weren't necessarily who today ended up being our um, really core target customer. And that's like, you know, emergency managers or, you know, GIS analyst or manager. And if we had, if we had have gone deep on those customer interviews and more volume and extracting the insights earlier on, I think maybe we, yeah, we could have sort of shortened some of those product iterations. So yeah, customer interviews just so, so important to do at the earliest possible time. I think that's really good. That's a really good perspective. And I think a lot of founders would benefit from taking that advice. Um, speaking of advice, I imagine that a lot of folks have helped you along this journey, uh, investors, mentors, partners. What are one or two pieces of like the most helpful advice you've ever gotten as a founder that have helped you navigate the last six years and the next however many years it takes? Yeah, probably some incredible advice. A company, an incredible company that's achieving an incredible impact is one with an incredible team. And I think that's something we've tried our best to operate at at Floodmap. You know, we look for people that I think if we, you know, if our team was good, we might not be successful statistically as a startup, right? If our team was great, we might not be successful. Like you have to have an exceptional team in order to have a chance at developing a product, launching a product, and then commercializing that that product and and taking it into significant growth. And so I think that advice has held so true that, you know, it's it's about the team at the end of the day. And you know, looking through um, over the years, it's something I'm incredibly proud of is, yeah, just some of the the people that joined our team in the early days. Like we really focused on finding people that were, you know, an expert in their field. So early on, we hired an incredible flood engineer, Daniel Knott, um, an incredible data scientist and civil engineer, uh, Rob Wall and an incredible software engineer, uh, Andrew Wilson. And so, yes, they were experts in their field, but what was common, you know, in those first three early hires was they were also incredibly passionate about the problem. So they had a personal link to the the problem, you know, from experiencing flooding in in their childhood growing up. And they didn't just want to 
you know, be successful or build a great product in their career. They wanted to achieve an impact in in their career. And I think um, it's been working with incredible people like this that I know like without them, there's no way our company would have been successful. So I think, yeah, in terms of taking those lessons forward and in hiring, you've got to try and find, uh, yeah, find the most talented people in their field, but also find the people that are passionate and driven and aligned with your mission. Because if they're not aligned with the mission, they're most likely not going to have like the determination and grit and tenacity that's needed to take this startup to the next you know phase of of growth because it's such a hard thing to do um that we've touched on already um it's just it's uh yeah you've got to have those those incredible people for sure so that was one bit of advice that we got that was really valuable and the next piece that um and i i will also caveat that i don't know i've perfected this yet but i know that this advice is true and it's something i'm working on every day is that and it and it sort of builds on from the team nicely. So you have to get the team in place, and then as a founder, you really have to be able to to delegate um, to be able to scale because you're growing so quickly. You know, in um, December 2021, we would have been 10 people. You know, a year later, a year 18 months later, we were 30 people, and so tripling the size of a team and then getting ready for the next phase of growth after that you can't do it if your tendency is to own everything as a a founder which mine definitely is that's been a really hard thing for me you have to be able to let go and empower people and you know manage them to achieve the the outcomes that you need not to be able to be across and doing everything because if you do that it's never going to work so yeah advice i get all the time have not perfected it but work on it very very carefully (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think delegating well is such a difficult thing to master, especially when it's something that you're really passionate about. Because when you want perfection out of the outcome, or at least the level of execution and quality that you would achieve if you were singularly focused on the task, anytime you might feel like, oh, it will be different, or it will, it won't look the way that I would have done it. It's hard to let go, right? I think that's like a control dynamic that a lot of founders really struggle with. I know I I do. And Absolutely. so yeah, I commend you. I commend you on your progress. I think it's interesting. A lot of the conversations that happen around startups really focus on the founding team and the founders, right? And in reality, companies are built by this community of people. And your first, second, tenth hire are often so instrumental in your success, right? Um, and effectively are co-founders, right? They're not called co-founders, but they play this really foundational role. And I think having this perspective on who should fill those shoes, I think is really important. And I think your advice rings really true to me, right? Like you want people solving this problem with you that aren't just good at doing it, but they care so deeply so that when shit goes wrong, which inevitably it will, they'll stay in the corner and they'll continue sort of pushing along with you Um, because you're in it, right? Like you're You're in in it. It's not a job. It's not a job for you if you're a co-founder. 
it's it is your life um good or bad as that may be and for those early employees i think yeah i mean i can definitely say that for our company like those earliest hires like we could not have built what we've built today without them they've been absolutely you know just the most instrumental part of the journey and you can tell it's so much more to them than than just a job like it's I don't know. I just have so much passion for our incredible team and what they've achieved. Like it seems like they've achieved the impossible. It honestly blows me away. I love it. Well, that's a perfect ending note. Thank you so, so much for joining me on the call today, Juliet. And uh, I'm excited to get this episode live. My absolute pleasure to speak with you, Dimitri. I hope we get to catch up uh, offline off the podcast soon. Thank you to everyone for listening to our conversation with Juliet Murphy about her journey with FloodMap. If you would like to learn more about FloodMap or get involved with the work Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.